Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering escapes to the beautiful San Juan Islands this spring. Convenient daily 45-minute flights to San Juan Island, Orcas, and Lopez Islands from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to September. Welcome to Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. I think you'd like to hear what happened this week from people who know... So we've assembled some of those people, nice people, too. Seattle Times senior investigative reporter Patrick Malone. Welcome back, Patrick. Hi, Bill. Insider tech correspondent Catherine Long. Welcome back, Catherine. Hey. And welcome back to Kitsap's son, military reporter Josh Farley. Hi, Josh. Hey, Bill. How you doing? I'm good, thanks. Happy Labor Day weekend, by the way, as well to everybody. Did you hear that Seattle just ended back-to-back months with an average high temperature of 80 degrees, both in July and August. So I did not hear that, but yeah. I felt it. <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah, you didn't need to be told in a way. You're, you knew it in your bones. The last time that's happened was 700 million B.C. in the Neo-Proterozoic era. And I remember <laughs> that summer, too. Very, very few people had A.C. at that time. Um, We are streaming the show, which means you can watch the show if you are on YouTube or Facebook. Just search KUOW Public Radio. And if you've missed any part of the show and you're just tuning in, you can hear the entire thing on the Week in Review podcast or at KUOW.org. That said, let's get into the news. Patrick, your newspaper said that Seattle Time, or rather Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell, was doing damage control this week after radio station KTTH reported on remarks he made in a private meeting with the police department. Whatever people said I said, I will own it. Whatever people said I said. That's very Alexander Hamilton. And there were many grievances cited here. Harold told police in this meeting that he continues to be frustrated with some, quote, inexperienced city council members. Frustrated by the county's homeless response agency, frustrated by people dropping needles in parks and sleeping in public places, which Harold said they have no right to do. And I'm still not happy with what I'm seeing. And you do not want a mayor that's complacent. This was uh, those are not private recordings, by the way. That was just the mayor talking about acknowledging the remarks that uh, he's reported to have made. And uh, not really apologizing, Patrick. The Seattle Times headline said he's doing damage control. But really, what was the damage? Well, he said a lot of things. You know, he referenced limitations of the newly elected council members based on their inexperience, kind of drew a line in the sand with them. He notably said that no one has the right to sleep in public spaces. He questioned the efficacy of the regional homeless authority, and maybe most importantly, because it bore a level of specificity that the mayor's general rants did not, he expressed his position that the city should not be under a U.S. Department of Justice consent decree mm. requiring improvements in the way the police department conducts itself. Yeah. So and we, we, we'll, we'll talk about all that. Um, when we talk about damage control, I mean, I'm, I wasn't surprised to hear the mayor's positions. Um, did he and, and, and the response from some of the people he called out in the private meeting they didn't really seem to make much of a fuss about it. Uh, what, what, for starting with you, Patrick, what was your take on, on any damage done? Well, I think what it really did is it very, maybe earlier on in his administration than he expected, really tells us who he's tailoring his message to and his agenda, his agenda to appease. This is very much in line with the Seattle Police Department and anyone who shares its political perspectives on how the city should be run. So we know that they have his ear. And I'm not sure that it's necessarily in step with the city as a whole. And that's where some of the damage comes in. And what it tells us for the Regional Homeless Authority, for instance, is that its desire to see its $119 million annual budget grow to exceed $200 million within the next cycle is probably doomed. And it means any push for unity with the new members of council has been set aside by the Herald administration, uh, maybe even sooner than they expected to. Hmm. Uh, Catherine, we were talking about this and you you said maybe these remarks were leaked to the press purposely. Well, I, I wouldn't go that far. Oh, I okay. think, though, so, uh, you know, it's um, 
I think that any any public official uh, with as much experience and and whose team has as much experience as Bruce Harrell would expect that when you give similar remarks to uh, a set of people multiple times, as as Harrell did, he had multiple meetings with police officers at uh, roll calls in different precincts. Um, I think the expectation is that some of it will end up in the press. And I think that, uh, you know, maybe that was a calculated decision on the part of Harold's team. It seems that, as Patrick mentioned, he's, uh, you know, really calling out uh, what, who, who he's going to be uh, backing, what faction of Seattle politics he's going to be um, publicly supporting uh, in, in the years to come. And it's, it's the Seattle police officers and uh, people who agree with them. Um, you know, he, I, I would say even, even if he didn't necessarily call out many people by name, uh, although he did call out the, the leader of the, the lead program by name, Lisa Delgard, uh, mm-hmm. saying that he's not convinced that uh, her program is creating the outcomes that, that he wants. That's a diversion. Uh, the, the, I just want to say, sorry to interrupt, but oh. that, that that's a diversion program. That's right. Away that's from right. Jail. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. Uh, the, the tone of the, the tone of the remarks was, uh, quite quite combative, <laughs> mm-hmm. at least the way that KTTH reported them. Uh, you know, he, he called some programs uh, BS. He, uh, you know, reassured police officers that he does not believe that any of the um, any of Seattle's homelessness crisis is, is their fault. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think he's he's drawing a line in the sand for what he will and will not um, support in the coming years. I see. Okay, and I didn't mean to mischaracterize your say. You, yes, you didn't exactly say they were purposely leaked, but you've done a a, a good job of explaining your your take on this. So thank you. And um, Josh, you you were saying, you know, um, maybe Harold is reading the room here. Yeah, I wonder about as a mayor, you have to focus on which crisis do you take on, and I wonder sometimes if maybe the message delivered was maybe a little more about crime than it was about the issue of homelessness. And there's been years and years of frayed relations between uh, the Seattle mayor and the police force. Um, and and here we are also in a summer where, uh, you know, Danny West needs the latest column about, I think August had the, the most uh, homicides in, in Seattle uh, in, in, in quite a few years, good dating back to at least 08. And um, it's that's kind of a sad reality here, right? Because it's not like, you know, homelessness is a tragedy. It's not criminal. Yet I think people instantly make that connection. And I wonder if the candor, if if how candid the mayor was being uh, in these remarks that there maybe is uh, a bid to establish some trust, um, kind of make that make that bridge. If again, if that's even if that's even possible. Hmm. So back to you, Patrick, these comments from the mayor may be they're very clearly very interesting to to insiders and to journalists. A listener might be wondering, okay, but what does any of this mean for policy? Why should I be interested in in this kind of back and forth? Well, one thing that uh, certainly is going to be a practical effect of his remarks is the relationship with council. And that does potentially undermine some of his, maybe even his own policy objectives. If he can't get things through council or if council can't get the mayor to sign off on things, then accomplishing a lot of policy objectives is going to be very difficult. And uh, I think also it's very notable that one of the practical effects that could result uh, from from these remarks is abandonment of the DOJ consent decree with the police department. And let's just remind people that this is a police department that came under fresh scrutiny for the force it used against citizens during the demonstrations of 2020. It had members present at the insurrection of the U.S. Capitol as it was beginning. And uh, their own statistics show grave disparities in use of force against communities of color. They haven't even done a great job of even tracking that, but the little bit they have shows really uh, poor results. So if that movement in particular gets the traction that that uh, Harold seems to want, it could turn loose the police department to abandon steps it's made toward progress at a really inappropriate moment. Mm. One more before we leave this topic. We said in passing that Mayor Harrell was critical of the King County Regional Homelessness Authority, which gets most of its money from the city of Seattle. And I, it's not the first time I've heard him say words to the effect of, what are they doing with their money? And that did make me wonder, could that lead to uh, 
po- actual policy change if it signals that the mayor is not going to uh, is not going to keep sending more money. I don't. I, I don't want to overstate that. But does anyone think that the that the mayor has the power and the interest in not contributing so so much to the countywide homelessness response? And also, what does he want from that agency that he's not getting? Anybody have a thought about that? Well, I do think that there's been sort of an appetite throughout Seattle to know why the homelessness crisis has become so intractable, despite seemingly constant growth in spending to combat it. So uh, as far as things that constituents might be interested in getting to the bottom of, it's that. But does cutting funding get us there? I think we really need to know. I, I think what we all journalists and citizens alike is what are we getting for that money? And if that's the question, it's a sensible question. If it's just we're going to withhold the money without much thought about it. I think that that's the different story. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll watch that develop. Um, the The mayor also this week has been uh, talking about his new plan for the city's parks and playfields, and and that's got to get approved by the council. We'll see how well they're working together. We'll follow all that stuff. Uh, I, I'm going to put a pause on that topic for now on the week in review and move to an an example of a backlash when it comes to the topic of homelessness and people living on the streets. And that backlash is something we can see if you've seen these big cement blocks along some streets in mostly Georgetown, Soto, Ballard. Uh, You'll see businesses bringing in these You can't tell who did it, but there are concrete blocks to block the parking spots so that people can't park RVs there. Now, while parking in a spot for more than three days is illegal, so are the cement blocks. They're illegal, too. But the head of the Soto Business Improvement Area, Erin Goodman, says she can understand why businesses are doing that. If you have a situation where you've had an RV and you've had a buildup of rats and you're being told by the health department that your food handling permit is at risk because of the situation outside of your building that you've been begging the city to help you with for months, I would understand. Catherine, the city has not fined anyone for putting these blocks out front. Do you suspect that's related to the mayor saying no one has a right to sleep in a public space? I think they're certainly uh, connected. I don't know if they're directly connected. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, when I when I think about the, you know, the the, the parking enforcement. So uh, last October, Seattle announced that it would uh, once again, um <clears throat> Make sure make 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 people move their cars if they've been parked in the same place for more than more than three days. Uh, I think about what one resident of uh, an RV told Seattle Times reporter Amanda Joe, who's been covering this issue very closely. Uh, he said that that the parking enforcement uh, creates a, a tsunami of panic and fear because he's he's afraid of losing everything. He's afraid of losing his home, his property, his tools. Uh, we we saw uh, you know. Last week that uh, in one Delridge uh, street where there was formerly an RV encampment, it was then swept and uh, nearby businesses uh, replaced the, the parking on that street with eco blocks. Uh, the eco blocks were removed. Uh, they were placed there illegally and now they're going to be replaced with a bike lane that will, again, prevent RVs from from parking there. Um, it just it, it the, the situation is, you know, just. One one more symptom of of the intractable homelessness crisis in Seattle, and it's uh, you know hitting hitting our, our most vulnerable residents the hardest as as it always does. Yeah, that yeah. case in Delridge, uh, Patrick, with, with the this new this business was a new core steel. They admitted, yeah, we we put the blocks there, and now the blocks are so the city's removing them. Uh, or having them removed, but they're going to put in a bike lane. Is that a is that rewarding a business for placing concrete blocks out front? I guess we just have to kind of see what's the effect going to be. Is a bike lane going to deter RVs? Hmm. Uh, is a bike lane going to deter eco blockers? Right? Hmm. We don't know who these people are, or if you know some of them have come forward, but a lot of them we don't even know who they are. I guess we just have to wait and see. You know, I guess the one thing that we can tell with some uh, definitive position here or with authority is that the practical impacts 
of someone having to move a parked car versus someone having to move their residence are just extremely different. Uh, for instance, there's someone on my block here in West Seattle with a fleet of disabled Audis, and they're not living in them, but they've got the orange sticker treatment this week that says move them or you're going to get a ticket or they'll be towed. And I'm not sure that speaks to the intention of what they hope to accomplish with this stuff. But what we do know is that the people living in these RVs are going to face a much harder time than someone whose spare Audi gets taken to the, uh, you know, to the impound lot. Mm. Well, and go, yes, sorry, just to jump in here, go, going back to what we were just talking about, you know, May, Mayor Harrell's sort of a tough line on the King County Regional Homelessness Authority. One thing that the Homelessness Authority asked for in their their new budget proposal uh, was $5 million to create a parking lot for RV campers. Uh, and uh, depending on uh, how, how Mayor Harrell maybe feels about the Homelessness Authority and then how he feels about their, their funding request, um, who, who knows if that's going to get built. But, uh, you know, that's, that's uh, one policy change that could be on the line here. Yeah, yeah and we, we've seen it uh, on the Kitsap Peninsula as well. Um, I would just um, note that there was an, a, a bunch of RVs that congregated in a parking lot in Silverdale. Silverdale, of course, is very retail, commercial heavy if, you, if you've been there. And despite that fact, the, not, it's not necessarily next to a neighborhood, but the, the, the complaints were, were came in pretty hot and heavy. And uh, the, the county um, uh, and uh, through its social workers did something about it pretty fast. And um, and one of the complaints that was made was, you know, the in, there's lacking infrastructure for a bunch of RVs in one area. This is deviating a little bit from what we're talking about. But the bottom line is um, that, you know, where, for instance, pumping sewage and things like that, um, perhaps if there was something more permanent that would work, but then you're going to run into nimbyism uh, wherever you go. And as Catherine points out, we're, we're still really talking here about a symptom of um, this um, massive underlying problem. Patrick, Catherine mentioned the city of Seattle had stopped enforcing that three-day parking limit during the pandemic, and they've started enforcing it again. Does that mean the city is going to also order the businesses to remove those blocks? Well, that would almost require them to first know that the business did it. Yeah. And while while some have been forthcoming about uh, you know doing these sort sort of activities, most of it happens under cover of darkness. And there's some real practical challenges to holding the people who place eco blocks accountable. Uh, it's difficult to discern who placed them. There isn't really a, a mechanism or infrastructure in place to reckon with them. One of the recent stories about this in the Seattle Times pointed out that the city has contracted with towing companies to haul off RVs and parking violators with wheels, but not so for a two-ton concrete block without wheels. Mm. Even in cases where it's known which business laid down the eco blocks, the city so far has just issued a lot of warnings, has resisted ticketing offenders, and uh, there doesn't seem to be a move or any indication that they're going to get harder on it than that. They seem to be looking for alternative solutions, and they certainly aren't punishing uh, the people who respond by dropping these eco blocks, at least not yet. It seems like both RV campers and these businesses are saying obeying the law is hard. You don't understand how hard it is for me to comply with this law. And they're both sort of, uh, yeah, I don't know. Does that make sense? Does that make sense that it's like you, you, you're saying you don't want me to live here, uh, to park here, but I don't have, I don't have some place to go. I don't where, where I'm safe and for whatever, there's all those reasons why people don't want to go into uh, shelters. They don't like the, we talked to this one woman who said, I'm not homeless. I'm houseless, but I'm not homeless. This is my home. And and this is this is the only place that makes any sense for me to be safe and, and private. And I'm and I'm doing OK. And then you have these businesses saying you want us to comply with the law, but these other people aren't complying with the law. So we're going to take things into our own hands. Is that about right? It's one of the issues with when a law is not enforced, and it's one of the questions that should be asked before a law becomes law, right? Hmm. How enforceable is it, or is it going to become you know, an intractable problem on top of an intractable problem? Hmm. And while they say you can't park an RV here, they don't say where you can. And uh, that, that becomes one of the problems. And I think that there's uh, there are some competing interests in the government's mind here, and some of them are cosmetic. 
you know, the visibility of homelessness in Seattle, I would argue, is what elevates it in stature to the average citizen's interest in it. You know, before moving here, I lived in Washington, D.C. There was a homeless problem there, too. But it was largely not on the National Mall, not at the tourist attractions, certainly not outside a, a draw as big as something like Pike Place Market. So, you know, I think that the city in some ways is trying to move the homeless problem where it can be less seen, but they aren't telling them where they can go. What I'd like to know more about uh, is the the concrete businesses that are profiting off of selling these eco blocks to businesses. You know, these they're called eco blocks. It's short for ecology blocks. They're made from uh, leftover concrete or concrete waste. And uh, it seems like a, a lucrative way to turn a waste product into something that businesses want. I'd love to learn more about that. Indeed. Well, even if the city did get police officers or firefighters to remove the blocks, that might just mean even more overtime. Uh, We will explain that story to you in a moment, but we're going to have to charge you time and a half for it. Uh, That's coming up right after a break here on Week in Review. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at paxi.org. Support comes from the Discovery Inn on Washington's San Juan Island, an island getaway that's a ferry ride away, now taking reservations for summer and fall. More information and booking available at discoveryinn.com. This is KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, and you're getting caught up on the week with Kitsap Sons, Josh Farley, with insider reporter and tech correspondent Catherine Long, and Patrick Malone is here from the Seattle Times. Patrick, the Times reports that some Seattle police, firefighters, City Light employees are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year just in overtime, which does not seem ideal. What is happening? Well, let's tell you how much they're making to sort of get started here. But one firefighter that my colleague uh, Daniel Gilbert identified in this story hauled in more than $400,000 last year by logging a ton of overtime. Four others at the fire department exceeded 350000 in gross pay from the city. And four Seattle Light employees made close to 400000 So, you know, this is two plus times what a member of Congress makes just to frame, you know, we're trying to say how important these positions are, but five Seattle police officers were paid close to a quarter million dollars last year. And these are folks that are claiming 1000 to 2000 hours in overtime a year. Uh, One department employee at the police department worked one and a half times more overtime than he did standard time measured at 40 hours a week. So it creates a bunch of questions, not all of them fiscal. Some of them have to be about uh, these 48 hour shifts that they're working back to back. Uh, You know, how, how much useful work are we getting from these people in their second 24 hour shift? And we're spending this exorbitant amount of money on it. Yeah. I I would bring up the fact that um, this is not necessarily a new problem uh, in in terms of firefighting, in terms of some some of these kinds of, of emergency response jobs and public works, et cetera, in city county governments, et cetera, um, I wrote a story. I mean, this was years, probably fifteen years ago now, but uh, looking at uh, a huge surge in overtime on the peninsula, and one of the things I learned about was this idea of dynamic versus static staffing. Uh, static being that you essentially hire people for the workload that you have and and you make sure that they can cover all the hours with dynamic staffing maybe you don't hire as many people because think about how much retirement costs how much health care costs all of these uh, things that you have to pay for with each new hire whereas if you have the same hire but only paying them overtime to work double the job you actually end up saving some money. I'm not saying that that is happening here, but I will say that this is something that's relied upon frequently, I think, particularly um, in, in emergency response because of the fact that there actually can be some uh, cost savings. 
I want to touch on the point that Josh just made about this not being a new problem. Uh, you know, Daniel Gilbert at the Seattle Times has been reporting on this with regards to SPD and, and Seattle Fire for, for years now. I remember a 2019 story he did uh, showing that a, a SPD officer earned nearly four hundred and fifteen thousand uh, dollars, you know, a, a hefty chunk of that through overtime, including shifts where he, he claimed to work more than 24 hours in a day. And um, I, I, I recall at the time that was pegged largely to an inefficient and paper based system for recording overtime. It seems like this problem has, you know, we've, we've known that this problem exists for years now. And, and uh, do we have any sense about the extent to which the current overtime overtime uh, payments, high overtime payments are generated by lack of change or has have departments tried to make any kind of changes to their their overtime recording systems? I think the, that certainly right now, I think what we're looking at is is sort of a, a problem economy wide, right? I mean, since the pandemic, um, our labor force in America is frankly just smaller. So every agency, no matter what you're looking at, whether it's fast food, the post office, et cetera, everybody um, is 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 kind of in this in this situation. The issue, I think, with fire departments and as we may talk about corrections officers. Uh, police officers is these are not low skilled jobs. These are are folks that have to have a ton of training, months typically years of of work to go in. And um, I would point out the ferry system is also sort of in this same boat. Yeah, um, there's a lot made to the vaccine mandates. We lost some workforce there, but there's also just the the fact of. COVID of the pandemic of I met so many people, whether you're a nurse, a nursing shortage. I mean, there's there's a huge one right there. Uh, you know, you met uh, you, school so many bus people. drivers on and school on. Bus. Right. And who just kind of said, you know, to hell with it. I'm kind of done. You know, if it's going to go like this, if they were worried about the virus, if what whatever the case may be, if they were working a little bit later than they would have, there was a cliff that, that I think that happened. And I think that the fire department uh, in Seattle as, and fire departments across the state and country, um, as well as in other industries, are all dealing with this. You make a really great point, Josh. And in the case of the Seattle Fire Department, which is going through a lot of hiring right now because they did lose about 100 firefighters in the nine months since their vaccine requirement took effect. Uh, those were not just related to that, but there were retirements, resignations, termination, and some took extended leave over the vaccine requirement to challenge it. You know, there are 100 vacancies, and it takes a very long time to fill those, as Josh pointed out. So uh, there's a lag in getting those recruits on duty because the, of the prolonged academy process. And uh, you know, in response to this, the Seattle Fire Department also relaxed rules, allowing certain newer employees to work overtime when they had been prohibited from it in the past. So that's actually doing the opposite of driving down overtime. It's creating a new population within there that can uh, fill those hours while they wait for this lag in training. Well, Patrick, in the case of Seattle, uh, Josh referred to reasons why there actually might be a kind of cost savings if you get it right. Um, and but. Catherine also referred to this wonky system where it's not not only is it it's a paper system in some case for tracking, reporting and tracking overtime. And in some cases, it's a mix of paper and electronic forms, which whether it's accidental or graft, I, I'm not saying, but you but you could you it would be easy to get cases where people are double reporting and and that it's either difficult to or sort of easy to be lax about really policing this overtime. So I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm wondering. I'm putting myself in the shoes of a listener who might wonder: Okay, this overtime is it a cost savings, or is it? Um, it's not. But all these reasons we mentioned: the pandemic, the vaccines, the on and on and on. This is a huge cost problem um, structurally, or is this a scam where workers? And supervisors are sort of looking the other way and the taxpayers getting soaked. Well, the short answer is yes to all of the above <laughs> or maybe because what we really need is a thorough audit by by the state or the city to better understand how all these factors that are sort of commingling, especially with the new developments is an age old problem, you know, exacerbated by by the covid pandemic. 
what's driving these staffing struggles in the government services arena? And perhaps more importantly, whether investing in more full-time staff would significantly curtail all this spending or not. You know, I'd imagine there's an app, there's an appetite for that type of information in the public, but what's preventing it? It would certainly not be popular with public employees unions, but it's the kind of strict analysis that we're lacking and why we have more questions than we do answers. Yeah, and I would say too, of perhaps, well, really of paramount importance here is not just the dollars going out the door, but the service that's being provided. Um, and I don't just mean, you know, if somebody has a heart attack and there and you have somebody who's been on shift for two days straight, uh, you know, do you worry about what's going to happen in that situation, but also the burnout to, to uh, someone who is, is living that life of, uh, you know, not everybody is super thrilled about getting drawing a bunch of overtime shifts. I work, in, you know, in a city with a with a shipyard that uh, when the Navy doesn't make its you know timeliness for for getting overhauls completed. I can tell you that that there's a lot of people at the shipyard on Saturdays and Sundays getting that work done, and mm. and it wears on you. And it and it's hard. It, it's hard work. Uh, you don't know what to expect from a shift, um, and so. I think that you know management has to really worry about burnout and also of course the people themselves that we we don't want to run these people into the ground. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Good point. Thanks for that Josh. Okay, let's let's put a pause on that. Actually, uh understaffing also plays a role in our next topic and um listeners, we are about to discuss something that I know can be hard, especially for some of you to hear. I didn't want to just spring that on you. The topic here is suicide, Patrick. The Seattle Times has been reporting on a relatively high rate of suicides in Seattle jails. How many deaths have there been and why do you think this is happening? Well, speaking specifically of suicides, we've had five in the past two calendar years, and this one's not even finished yet. Four of them this year alone at the King County Jail in downtown Seattle. So it's difficult to answer with any authority, uh, considering that I can't speak to the factors driving suicides in other places about why it is higher here. And it's also hard to draw a lot of conclusions from a sample size that small. Mm -hmm. But that figure becomes a little more stark when you note that four of them happened this year, as I had mentioned. But even those numbers show that the rate of suicide in Seattle's main jail exceeds the 49 per 100,000 you know, inmates in jails nationally over the preceding decade. So uh, there are some ways experts familiar with this phenomenon say that threats of suicide could be reduced here. Uh, repairing bunks that lend themselves to use in suicide attempts. Restoring face-to-face visits that have been suspended during the pandemic. You know, that goes a long way towards a prisoner's mental health and uh, possibly back away from some of the peak COVID policies that led to greater isolation for people who are incarcerated. One former employee at the jail told my colleague, Sydney Brownstone, that she just simply believes mental health is not the priority it should be there. And jail administrators certainly disagree, but uh, it's hard to argue with that insider's perspective. Catherine, did you find evidence suggesting that the the prison authority is doing less than it could here. Well, Sydney's reporting has shown that, uh, you know, there's been a, a, a lack of care to fix a known problem with the bunks uh, that, uh, you know, are, are a factor in some suicide attempts, as well as uh, this, the, the jail authority's lack of compliance with the reporting requirements, requiring it to release information about jail deaths. Uh, it, it seems almost like the prison authority is, is sitting on its hands and, and watching a crisis unfold. That being said, you know, we, we opened the segment talking about understaffing and, and the, the county has said that, uh, you know, a, an understaffing crisis at the jail is making it a lot harder to make some of these changes that uh, Patrick mentioned that experts agree would uh, create a much better environment in, in, in the King County Jail. Um, the, the rate of open positions is currently at nearly 20% in the jail and and uh, prison officials have said that that is is making it a lot more difficult to resume in-person visits and, and group programming. Yeah, there's this sense of I got a sense from Sydney's reporting of, of loneliness and despair and isolation that uh, that is becomes even worse with some of these cutbacks and pandemic measures. 
I guess uh, uh, bef- before we leave this topic, I, I again, I try to imagine questions listeners might have, and we've spent so much time talking again today about understaffing and sort of mixing that with 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 pandemic response. Does anybody have any thoughts about whether these reasons for shortages and delays and understaffing and overtime and on and on are that this is a this is temporary those are for temporary reasons um and we're going to eventually not be talking so much about about understaffing you always have attention with taxpayers and 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 funding government programs any yeah, any any thoughts on what we should be thinking about about this just a short a, a shortage in it seems like almost everything these days. Yeah, I, I see this as uh, somewhat of a short term thing. I think we lived through an ex- you know this is an extraordinary time with the pandemic, uh, and and I do think that you know we're we're starting to see you know uh, again to pick on one of our local agencies here, the Washington State Ferries. You, you know that there's only half the service they used to have on the Seattle Bremerton Run there. Uh, and but they're talking about now. Okay, we're start, we're getting people in the pipeline. We're doing things a little bit differently. And so I do think that it's somewhat short term. I think long term, once we start to look that way with this particular issue, you, you know, that was also I would point to the Seattle Times reporting on this is that uh, Dow Constantine, the King County Executive, has talked about the idea of maybe it's time this this facility just generally is just antiquated. It's time to um, you know, t- time to to look long term at what and and I liked in the Times reporting comparing it to uh, to the uh, the facility in in Kent and um, I think it was in right Kent. Um, yeah, the mailing center. They have not right. been any suicides. Nor mailing. There, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so you know this idea of of maybe looking at a modern facility. It, maybe it's time for that. Something from the from the eighties isn't going to cut it anymore. Of course, uh, the realities of of construction in Seattle of, of, of such a plan probably are daunting, but you know, the clock is ticking and obviously um, the, the, this is a broader issue, but the fed is sig- signaling, you know, interest rate hikes. So maybe, maybe they should get on that because borrowing costs are probably going to go up for, for everyone, including governments, but, mm. but maybe that's, maybe it's time to start thinking long-term too. I have to also question the political will to get things done that improve matters for a population that isn't as sympathetic as some, uh, you know, we're talking about this repair of bunks bleeding into 2023. We know that they're a suicide threat. Where is the immediate action? And that has to be regarded as a relatively sort of minor project relative to something as, as huge as, as revamping the jail. I think, Maybe there needs to be a closer analysis of not just numbers, how many staffing, but what is the right mix of staffing, especially for a facility that, to be fair, is receiving a lot of uh, of not just prisoners, but frankly, patients who need mental health care. And, uh, you know, getting that mix right is going to be critical as well. I, I think that one of the parts that was very disheartening about Sidney Brownstone's reports were when the the jail administrators actually tried to say, ah, two of those deaths aren't really our responsibility because yes, they tried to commit suicide in the jail, but we got them out the door before they died. And yeah, that they died is in not... hospitals. And so they were trying to, to, to not count that. Right. And that to me does not express a sincere or genuine willingness to admit problems, which is the first step towards fixing them. Mm-hmm. That's a great point, Patrick. Yeah, the systemic problem here rather than uh, just, well, it's not on me. Uh, That came through to me as well. All right, we're going to take a short break on KOW's Week in Review. Remember, if if somebody you know, since we're talking about suicide here, if someone you know is struggling, including you, there is help. And I want to remind you that that you or someone you know can call, day or night, can call 988 for free confidential support. 988. Week in Review is going to return in just a moment. Uh, We're streaming the show on YouTube and Facebook, and we hope you'll stick around with us. On KUOW's Week in Review, you're getting caught up on the week. 
from Kitsap Suns, military reporter Josh Farley and the Seattle Times senior investigative reporter Patrick Malone, and from Insider, tech correspondent Catherine Long. Catherine, Insider has reported on some departures at Microsoft, departures of senior women leaders and departures of some bosses who've been accused of treating women unfairly, in some cases accused of sexual misconduct. Will you tell us what's going on? Yeah, so this story really starts back in 2014 uh, when uh, uh, Satya Nadella took over as CEO from Steve Ballmer. Nadella promised to uh, create a, a new friendlier Microsoft to really change some of the company's culture that had allowed what he called, quote, talented jerks to flourish in among Microsoft executives. Uh, and the rebrand seemed to have worked. I mean, Microsoft is perceived among many people in Seattle as the, the adult in the room, the more mature tech company when you compare it to some of its corporate peers, thinking about move fast and break things, meta, and uh, you know, WeWork, Uber, uh, some of these companies that are renowned for bad behavior, Microsoft is seen as you know, certainly a, a, a much um, healthier place to work in that regard. But mm-hmm. my colleague Ashley Stewart has been reporting for the past couple of years on um, some pretty serious allegations of, of misconduct, harassment, favoritism among uh, top level Microsoft uh, executives. Uh, two of them just left the company. Alex Kipman left uh, in June. And Jeff Ma left earlier this month. Kipman was uh, leading Microsoft's virtual reality efforts, and he was accused by uh, subordinates of uh, sexual misconduct, including uh, watching what one employee called virtual reality porn in the office, inappropriate touching. Uh, employees banded together. They they reported his behavior uh, numerous times, and and nothing was done until Ashley published her reporting. Uh, the other departure, Jeff Ma, he was accused uh, last year uh, by uh, members of his department of creating an environment that was hostile towards women. Um, senior women leaders seemed to flee his uh, startups division, and uh, he he announced earlier this month that he was leaving the company as well. So th- th- this is a broad question. So, um, you know, uh, bearing that in mind, Catherine, would Would you say that Microsoft seems any more or less serious about acting on sexual misconduct allegations? You mentioned their reputation, but compared to other tech companies, um, what what, what do you make of the response at Microsoft, which you said didn't really, some of it didn't happen until until, uh, your colleagues' reporting? That's right. I think the fact that there were internal efforts uh, and, and reports about these two executives for, in some cases, years before any action was taken and and you know, no action was really taken until the scandals were made public. Uh, it it speaks to the fact that uh, you know, despite Nadella's best efforts, um, uh, or certainly best efforts at at publicly creating a friendlier face for Microsoft, which we know um, has you know its own history of of sexual misconduct in the in the early two thousands with Bill Gates. Um, I, I think that there's still work to be done. It's difficult for me to gauge the extent to which Microsoft is doing better or worse than other than other tech giants, but it, yeah. I, I would say there's certainly still work to be done. Catherine, I have a question about this, but uh, how much could Microsoft, you know, demonstrate that its intentions are better or by, by filling some of these positions with women, I think, you know, uh, when you have men in in most of these high ranking positions, and they're abusing these powers, you know, is there any talk at Microsoft about making a higher percentage, greater ratio of its key top leaders, women? You know, the entire tech sector is is talking about that. <laughs> Microsoft is certainly no exception. It, it issues uh, some pretty comprehensive reports on on its diversity. Uh, diversity among its employees. Um, you know, whether or not these positions are filled by women, I think they should be filled by people who are committed to establishing a corporate norm that does not discriminate against women, does not discriminate against minority employees. I think that's that's the most important thing at the end of the day. That's uh, Catherine Long uh, discussing uh, her work and her colleague Ashley Stewart's work at uh, at Insider. Um, as we head toward the end of another week in review, I want to check in on uh, some work. Josh, you're in uh, Kitsap County, and you have been reporting on mildew, sir. What is happening to the trees? 
Yeah, well, I can bounce this right back back at you um, on the UW campus because it was there a few years ago that uh, some scientists started to notice uh, this whitish hue forming on big leaf maples, um, one of our most beloved trees here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, hugely um, important for repairing, you know, riparian habitats, uh, extremes, and they they noticed this and they started tracking it and they figured out it was a, a kind of fungus. Um, it is spreading uh, incredibly rapidly for reasons unknown. It has been here on the North American continent. They found even dating back to uh, as far back as 1938. So it's not new. They think it came from Europe. And they don't know what it means for the tree uh, long term, but we're pretty certain it's not good. Uh, anything that that takes your water, your nutrients away, your sugar, <laughs> you know, the, these things are not good. They're uh, not for the for the long term health. And coupled with climate change, we've there's already been some uh, research done uh, with regard to the big leaf maple. But essentially, the the too much heat damages its immune system. So these these trees that are really precious are are really under attack here, and it it, it comes at a time when uh, also scientists at UW are looking at ways of tapping into their sap, which uh, has proven uh, a somewhat burgeoning industry. If you do some googling, you'll find um, some fine purveyors here in the northwest of. Uh, big leaf maple syrup, not unlike the, the sugar maples back east. It's a little different tasting, but uh, a, a way to make that crop a little more popular. And then this happens. So uh, we don't know that is the bottom line long term. What's what's going to happen for the for the species? Josh, I want your I want your review of the big leaf maple syrup. How does it taste? How does it compare? Should we all be putting it on our pancakes? Good question. Oh, I, well, I, I I personally really liked it. Um, we have a couple of people here that are doing it in Kitsap. There's a there, I know up and down the Western Washington. There's some um, there's some folks that are are tapping into the trees. I hate to do this, but I'm going to use the word uh, earthy, uh, <laughs> which is pretty much like a, a death sentence, right? That probably turned you turned you earthy off to it. Um, earthy and gamey. Those earthy are two and, and gamey. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's I, I would say it tastes a, a little more. It has a little more of a vanilla edge to it. I I, I see you know, the next, um, the next big thing. I always thought that, you know, if, if uh, uh, some kind of big leaf maple glaze, I could see that on the menu at a top-notch restaurant and, and uh, on Puget Sound. Uh, I think that that could definitely become popular. It's like earthy, but out of this world, right? Right, earthy, but out of this world. What well, briefly, can anything be done to help our big leaf maples? Don't right now, uh, not a lot. It spreads so rapidly. You know, if you are, uh, a, you know, a gardener, not to take, you know, Cisco Morris's um, tunes here or anything, but oh if you're, la. if you have a, what's that? Oh, la la. Oh, la la. Right. Yeah. Um, if you're, if you're a gardener, if you have this, there are ways of, you know, essentially fun, fungicide, you can, you, you can um, get rid of it if it's on one of your trees. But I mean, imagine as a, as a species, you know, think of uh, when you're trail hiking anywhere, uh, the how plentiful these these trees are. Mm -hmm. So there's there is no, the the short answer is there's not really um, anything. Reminds me a little bit of the green crab discussion that's been, of course, happening. The green crabs are invading here, which I know Bill is a topic that's been discussed on Week in Review. Absolutely. How are we doing with the green crab uh, battle? We, I, eat it was one thing I heard. You can you can eat it. Oregon actually established it as a recreational fishery. Um, Washington is it looks like is not going to do that, but it I, I it's not it's not great. They think uh, this that being the scientists, uh, Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, they think they can at least control the green crab a little bit better in local waters here in the Salish Sea uh, because they 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 come uh, from to and from uh, through the Strait of Juan de Fuca, which um, gives, you know, essentially makes it po possible to control smaller populations by targeting for eradication. Whereas on the coast, there's not really much we can do if the green crabs are going to proliferate. That's, it seems like from what I'm hearing, 
um, they're going to be here, unfortunately, because well, they do great damage to our habitat. Okay. So. Uh, speaking of things, so we've talked about uh, big leaf maple syrup and green crabs. <laughs> and uh, finally, I want to leave us with uh, with something to smile about it as we do at the end of the show. Uh, Starbucks getting a new CEO. Howard Schultz is stepping down again. And the new guy is Lakshman Narasimhan, who most recently led the beautifully named British company Reckitt. Makers of Woolite, Clearasil, Lysol, and the infant formula Enfamil, which is surprisingly good with coffee. If they're out of oat milk, I like to get the iced brown sugar Enfamil espresso. Um, I don't recommend the Lysol spice latte. It's um, it's it's earthy, I would or gamey, as I guess you would say. It just it's it, it didn't work. It just didn't work. Uh, Narasimhan joins the Starbucks in October, starts as CEO next spring. Anything uh, you want to leave listeners with? That, uh, a ray of hope, something to smile about. Kids, kids are riding free on transit. I think, uh, particularly for ferries. You know, it's a sunk cost or they're running the boats anyway when they don't sell out. Uh, look at it from a parent's perspective. If you've got a family of five uh, ferry costs, that's a little much for us now. It's just the two parents and the ferries get five people to go across. I think it's a great thing, number one. And uh, if you're go- if you're a baseball fan, to be rooting in Seattle for a baseball team in September is uh, a great feeling. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, now that they've got three wild card teams in each league, uh, the Mariners are, are looking kind of pretty right now. Anything else to, before we go, Catherine? I'm just thrilled to see uh, green chili from New Mexico showing up and being roasted in the parking lots of grocery stores here in the PN Dub because uh, it was a smell that I grew up with. It just means fall to me, and it's just gorgeous to see the cultural proliferation of green chili. This has been a delicious show. Catherine, you want to leave us with anything? I'll leave you on another delicious note. I'm excited that it's blackberry season, you know, little fruit, five worms and all. I'm going to go out and stuff my my face with them. I know. I see little critters in there, but they're just too good. I'll take the critter protein. It's gamey. Uh, okay, we gotta we gotta run. Uh, this has been another uh, excellent week in review, which is produced by uh, Kevin Kinestad. and our panelists this week: Kitsap Sons, Josh Farley, Insiders, Catherine Long, and the Seattle Times, Patrick Malone. Thanks everybody for being on the show this week. Thanks, Bill. Great Thanks, to Bill. see you. Great to see you all. I can see you because of social media and live streaming help from Tio Popescu and Juan Pablo Chiquiza. Thanks for listening. I'm Bill Radkin. We'll see you next week.